Well, we read 2 Kings 13, and in this passage we have a lot going on, so it's hard to decide whether to cover the whole chapter at once. I decided I'm going to go for it. You guys were here who were here last week, you know I was, I was set to preach and I was convinced it was going to be a short sermon. It was probably the longest sermon I've preached in a year. I'm going to try again this week. Thank you for your patience with me. Especially those of you who were in the nursery last week. <clears throat> so in spite of the length of the sermon, we'll try to get through it quickly. Now one of the things that we need to understand is that in this chapter, what we just read, we've switched from studying Judah and the kings of Judah, and we've gone back to the kingdom of Israel. And so Kings switches back and forth where its focus is. We're going from Judah in chapter 12 back to Israel in chapter 13. <clears throat> and so we're talking about the son and grandson of Jehu. And you remember Jehu. Jehu was the, the crazy man, right? Zealous for accomplishing the work of the Lord that God had commanded him to do, and yet, who fell short of cleansing the land of Israel from the sins of Jeroboam. Nevertheless, the Lord had promised to him that he would have four generations on the throne, so it ought not be a surprise to us that here it is, the, kings, the next kings of Israel are the son and the grandson of Jehu, just as God promised, because God keeps his promises. Such a basic, important fact for us to remember. God keeps his promises. And if we can remember that, we will be so strengthened because we will know that we can trust him when he says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When he gives us that promise and we know he always keeps his promises, how can we hear that without rejoicing? How can we hear that without being glad in him? And that's just one promise that we have from him. One of the ways that he promises his people blessing, a hope, and a future. Here in this chapter, we see it's not even mentioned. The promise isn't even mentioned in this chapter. It's back a ways, right? Because we've been looking at Judah, and before that, we were looking at Jehu. And so all of a sudden, you, you come forward, and we make it to the son and the grandson of Jehu. And the, the, the passage that we read, we read the whole chapter, uh, the, the way that it's set up and the way that chapter 14 is set up, I just want to warn you right now, if you're anything like me, chapters 13 and 14 get a little confusing because you got kings with the same name in the same kingdom, you've got kings going by two names, and you've got 
some jumping back and forth a little bit in the timeline in these two chapters. Backing up and telling stories that happened after the king is already, you've heard the summary of the king and his life, and then it'll go back and it'll tell a story about him. Or it'll say that God answered a prayer, but it'll be answered later after he's dead. These are the kinds of things that can get a little bit confusing if you don't pay attention. So let's, let's walk through this chapter. Let me just give you a quick summary of what happens. Again, we just read it, but if you were zoned out, how many of you kids were zoned out thinking about other things? I got one honest child out there. That's good. Thank you. Um, okay, so what happened in this passage? Okay, how many adults were zoned out? Okay, well, maybe. Uh, children are allowed to be honest, right? Verses 1 through 9, we have a summary of Jehu's son Jehoahaz and his rule in Israel. It's a sinful rule. He is less like David than his father was. Okay? He's more like Jeroboam. So that's the first nine verses. But in verses 4 through 7, in the middle of that, we have this, we have this parenthetical statement, this little story about Yahweh's mercy, about God's mercy on Jehoahaz when he is in extreme need and he prays to the Lord. And then we read that in spite of God answering his prayer, that the the people did not repent. So, sinful king with a sinful nation, and he prays to the Lord and God answers his prayer. That's miraculous. That's unexpected, right? And then it says God hears the prayer and answers it, but he but the people don't repent. So that's this little parenthesis in the middle of the summary of his rule verses 4 through 7 and then we finish up the summary of Jehoahaz's rule by verse 9. Then in verses 10 through 13 we have the summary of Jehoahash, who is also known as what, kids? Any of you catch it? Yeah, Zeal. Joash. Okay, whenever uh, there's a name that starts with J-E-H-O, you can slash off parts of it. That's what it seems like. I don't know. You just end up with being able to modify these, uh, the the E-H in the middle can just get dropped sometimes. That's what we see here. So Jehoahash's rule is summarized in 10 through 13, and he's sometimes known as Joash, and his rule was also sinful. His rule was also sinful. Then in verses 14 through 19, okay, so we're, we're, we're seeing a lot happen. That's why I want to make sure we all have, we, we have the whole chapter in mind. Verses 14 through 19, In spite of these two sinful kings, God promises Israel deliverance through Elisha. Jehoahash interacts with Elisha. So we saw the story of Elisha, his final two miracles, one of which was after he was dead. Right? How God continues to save his people Israel. 
even after Elisha is dead. And that's an important point in this chapter. Elisha is not the Savior. Right? Even after Elisha is dead, God is still saving. Then we have, <clears throat> well, I guess I, I, I skipped forward to verses 20 and 21. That's the miracle after Elisha is dead. Then in verses 22 and 23, we have this dual promise. Okay? We have God's promise of judgment on his people of Israel, and we have his promise of his covenant mercy. And they're both fulfilled back to back in two verses. The promise of judgment and the promise of covenant mercy are both described back to back and fulfilled in verses 22 and 23. And then finally in verses 24 and 25, we read of God fulfilling his promise of deliverance under Jehoash. Okay? And that's when he defeats Aram three times after the, according to the three times that he struck the ground with the arrows. Okay, so now you couldn't have heard it twice without learning some of it, right? Okay. Everyone was paying attention, it looked like to me. Now, what's the big picture? Yeah, we've switched back to Israel. But I want to use this time to remind us of what is going on in the book as a whole. Captivity is coming for Israel. This is a story that's walking to a destination. And the end of this story is the people are in captivity. And that's terrible. And so the story that Kings seems to be telling is not just how it came about that the people of Israel ended up in captivity, but why. Why did the people of Israel end up in captivity? And this chapter really gives just a, a small picture of the whole book as a whole. If you remember the book of Judges, the repetitive statement that the people did what was right in their own eyes, and then God was judging them, punishing and disciplining them, and then they cried out to the Lord and He provided a deliverer. That's what we see in Kings over and over again. We see this same repetition of a wicked king, wicked people, and yet God mercifully providing these prophets like Elijah and Elisha, and also of providing salvation from their enemies. We see God being patient and merciful over and over and over again. So if that's the big picture in Kings, 
what comes out, what's emphasized, is that God has not failed to keep his covenant when the people end up in captivity. How did they end up in captivity? Well, I guess God failed to keep his covenant. No. You might be tempted to think that, but read through Kings and you find out how and why they ended up in captivity. And it wasn't because God forgot his covenant. It wasn't because he didn't keep it. It wasn't because he got impatient. It wasn't because he decided, actually, I don't like the people of Israel, the sons of Jacob, right? In fact, even the little promises of God are fulfilled. Certainly, his covenant, big covenant promise, is fulfilled. We see those both, the little and the big, in this, in this passage. So, if Kings answers the question, why did we end up in captivity? The answer seems to be, as we see in this passage, because the people simply cannot make up their minds. Now that's a strange answer to the question, I know. (laughs) The people of Israel cannot make up their minds. Who will they worship? Think back to Elijah on the mountain. You have him alone in front of one altar with the sacrifice on it. You have all the 450 prophets of Baal in front of the other. And Elijah's going, who are you going to serve? Who is the Lord? Who has power? And the people are all silent, right? And then God's power is displayed through the fire coming out of heaven and consuming the sacrifice, the altar, the rocks, the water, everything. And the, people, the Lord, He is God. Yahweh, He is God, right? And do they serve Him then? Does Ahab, the king at that time, serve Him? Does He lead the people to truly make up their minds to be the people of the Lord? No. And it's the same that we have here. They cannot make up their minds. Are you the people of the Lord or are you the people of something else? That's the question to us. What are we? Here we are, we're gathered in community, in fellowship as the people of God. That's why we're gathered, right? This is the same as Israel. They were gathered into a land as a people called by the name of the Lord. But were they the Lord's people? This is the question for us. Are you the Lord's people? What does it look like to make up your mind finally to follow the Lord? So let's back up verse 4 in this chapter. Having read that 
Jehoahaz followed the sins of Jeroboam in verse 2. And you remember, kids, what was the sin of Jeroboam that keeps getting talked about in Kings? Who can tell me? Yeah, Jubilee. He set up the golden calves and called the people to worship the golden calves, right? Instead of, instead of doing what? Oh, you already, yeah. Instead of going up to Jerusalem and worshiping the Lord there, yeah. He said, this is the Lord. Here, this golden calf and this one. These are the Lord. Worship the Lord. Worship him here. And of course, this was idolatry. This was the sin of Jeroboam. So having read in verse 2 that Jehoahaz followed in the sins of Jeroboam, and having read in verse 3 that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and that he continually gave them into the hand of Hazael, king of Aram, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, Okay, so this isn't the first time we've read about Hazael, right? God promised Elijah that Hazael would be the one who would bring about God's discipline on his people. One of the three people that Elijah was to anoint for this work, right? And Elisha, you remember, cried seeing what Hazael would do to the people of Israel. Now what we're seeing is God is fulfilling his word, his promise of judgment. And this is brought forth several times in this chapter and emphasized both at the beginning and at the end. Okay, So having read that, then in verse 4 we read, Then Jehoahaz entreated the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. That's pretty shocking. There is no reason for the Lord to have listened to him. And yet, the Lord listens to him. Well, there is a reason given. There's no reason in what we've read so far, right? But what is the reason that's given? Can any of you tell me? Does, does it, did any of you kids notice what it says about why God listened I'll keep reading, but does anybody anybody remember? Let me read it. The Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Aram oppressed them. Now, if you read the Bible, you'll begin to notice themes. Like I, I reminded you of the theme of the book of Judges, right? You'll begin to see themes reiterated in different places, in different books. And this is a theme of the Lord, that he saw the oppression of his people. Where else can you think of that the Lord saw the oppression of his people? Anybody? The most famous one is when they are in Egypt, in slavery. 
He saw the oppression of his people and so he rescued them. What does that mean about God? There was the, the king was bad, the people were bad. The king was sinful, the people were sinful. They were worshiping the golden calves, they were not worshiping him. It was an abomination. But the moment that Jehoahaz cries out to the Lord for favor, the Lord listens and answers his prayer because he saw the, the oppression that his people were under. The oppression, remember, that it was God who was placing them under. Right? It tells us something important about who God is and how he thinks about his people. It shows us his compassion, doesn't it? Now, to some degree, we can understand God's compassion. On the one hand, looking back, it's easy to think, why does God have compassion on them? They are a miserable lot. They grumble, they complain, they don't turn, they, they're not grateful when he does rescue them. They don't learn from their mistakes. They don't learn the lessons of his judgment or his discipline or his mercy. They constantly go back to the same thing over and over and over again. Why does God have compassion on them? Why does he have mercy on them? Why does he care what happens to them? It's easy to sort of look back at that time and think, yeah, Hazael and Ben-Hadad, his son, military king commanders of the armies of the neighbors just to the north. Sure. I mean, that stinks. But, the fact of the matter is, if you actually were to think about what it means to be oppressed by enemies, you might have some compassion yourself. The moment that you think about what war actually looks like, the grief of those who are left after the army is destroyed. The wives and children, the brothers and fathers, the men who are lost. You can't help but feel for them, right? In fact, this is part of what makes it difficult for us to read some of the Psalms, right? When, when you read of the Psalms calling for God's judgment on his enemies and you read about what the psalmist is calling the Lord to do, you think, no, wait a minute, I'm not sure I want to go that far. That sounds pretty awful. I, I have compassion on God's enemies, right? So think about this. The people of God are suffering 
some of the same ways that the, the enemies of God ought to suffer. How could you not have compassion? The Lord does have compassion. He hears, even though they don't deserve Him to hear. He hears. He listens. He acts. If God is willing to answer Jehoahaz's prayer, who led Israel in sinful ways and into wicked worship, how much more is He willing to hear your prayer? And I don't mean to say because you aren't wicked, but let's be let's be clear. By God's grace, you are not like Jehoahaz. You are not leading your people into idolatry. I hope. God is willing to hear Jehoahaz's prayer. How much more is he willing to hear your prayer? He is compassionate. In spite of our sin, he hears us. Pray to him. He will answer. So that's the first big lesson that we have in this chapter. When we get into the middle meat of this chapter, we get to the climax of the story of Jehoash's life. Okay, so Jehoahaz's son, Jehoash, not surprisingly, the climax involves Elisha, right? Whenever Elisha enters the picture, there's a climax in the story. It's amazing. This time it's no different. <clears throat> what I want you to see in this story about Jehoash, first of all, you've got this really... Um, stark uh, repetition that ought to stand out to you. Let me, <clears throat> let me read it to you there in verse 14. It says, When Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, or Jehoash, right? The king of Israel came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. What in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, it's not the only place... <clears throat> that we read something like that, first of all. And it's not the only place where chariots and horsemen are mentioned in this passage. Do any of you kids remember how many chariots 
were left? You already answered. Sorry. Any of you other kids remember how many chariots were left? Oh, come on. Do we have to let him answer again? All right, go ahead. Ten chariots. That's not very many chariots. When you're talking about great big armies, you could fit ten chariots and their horses and all the men that might be necessary to keep them up in this room. Right? Not talking about a mighty army. Doesn't take a huge swelling camera view on a drone zooming way out to to show the, the hordes of the Israelite armies and their chariots. We could look around, see him right here. But that's not the first time that uh, we hear this actual phrase, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Can any of you kids tell me where we've heard that before? Do you remember? Where? It's when Elijah was going up to heaven. And who said it that time? Elisha said it. How interesting is that? When the people of Israel are about to lose Elijah, Elisha says to him, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And now when Elisha is about to be taken from the people of Israel, King Joash says the same thing. This is part of why it is my understanding that uh, <clears throat> when Elisha said that to Elijah, he was not talking about a uh, fiery chariot. He was talking about Elijah himself. The loss of Elijah was the loss of the army. It was the loss of the protection. Elisha was saying, what are we going to do without Elijah? And the answer, of course, was Elisha. <laughs> Elisha takes the place of Elijah, right? He asks for a double portion of his spirit. He receives it. And we see immediately that he's able to carry on the same work that Elijah had been given to do. And now Elisha is coming to the end of his life. And the king comes and says, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now you, you could make the argument that he's saying, but we're down to ten chariots. What are we going to do? Right? And in some sense, that is what he's saying. But mostly he's saying, what are we going to do without you? Not what are we going to do about the fact that we don't have enough chariots left. What are we going to do without you? This is a loss that is too great to be fathomed, too great to bear. Too great a calamity for us to understand how it could ever turn out for good. How many times are there calamities in your life that you feel are too great for them to ever 
turn into anything good, for God ever to use them, for God ever to rescue. And what do you put your hope in at that time? Here the king of Israel, Joash, has put his hope not in the Lord, but in the Lord's prophet. Now that's a strange thing to say, okay? Because it, it is different than what Elisha did when he was speaking at the end of Elijah's life. But I want you to realize the parallel. I've already pointed it out, right? And I want you to see the contrast. I want you to recognize that things can look the same. You can say the same things and mean very, very different things. King Jehoash is relying upon Elisha rather than upon God. What are we going to do? Well, Elisha answers by giving him commands, right? He says, take a bow and arrows. That's his, that, that's his first response. Take a bow and arrows. Okay. Okay, I got my bow and arrows. Put your hand on the bow. Okay. Where are we going with this? We're inside. You know, what use is a bow inside? You guys know that you can't use bow and arrow inside, right? Even when I was a kid and you had Nerf bow and arrow, you couldn't use them inside. It's too, too short a distance. Okay. Then what does he say? Open the window toward the east. All right. Done. Then Elisha said, shoot. I mean, I guess I could see it coming, but I don't understand. So he shoots. And Elisha said, the Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram, for you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed Then he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stopped. Okay, now. You know what comes next, right? Elisha gets angry at him. Is Elisha reasonable? Or is he a grumpy old man? Is Elisha reasonable or is he a grumpy old man? 
Elisha is very reasonable here. I want you to, I want you to see it by the time I'm done. Okay. Elisha is very reasonable here. We have to have in mind the intensity of this trial, of the oppression under the Arameans, of the fear that the king comes to Elisha with. When you're dealing with things of this magnitude and this pressure, this level of danger and of fear and of uncertainty and what are we going to do without Elisha? Okay? In this context, we're not just putting on a little kid's play for the fun of it half-heartedly when Elisha's response to the chariots of Israel and its horsemen is, okay, get a bow and arrow, open the window, shoot. The Lord's arrow of victory. Now strike the ground with the arrows. And you have a half-hearted sort of like, okay, I'll play along. I'm going to keep my dignity, my kingly dignity. You know, I can't go smashing the ground forever. Just enough to be able to say, yeah, I did it. And is this what our obedience looks like to the Lord? To where we can say, yeah, I did what you asked. Is this what our obedience to our parents looks like? Yeah, I cleaned up my room. Yeah, I did it. It's just enough to... Be able to make the argument that you did what you were told to do. But is it wholehearted obedience? You see the difference, right? How, how can you avoid seeing? He's got other priorities. He doesn't put much stock in obedience or in trusting God. This is Elisha saying, the Lord is at work. The Lord will deliver. And the king's response is tepid. Do you kids know what tepid means? That's a $10 word. Who can tell me what tepid means? You already answered too. Come on, somebody can tell me what tepid means, right? Anybody know? Yeah, what? Weak or lame. That's a good That's a good answer. Tepid water is lukewarm. It's Neither hot nor cold, to use the comparison that the New Testament makes, right? It's tepid. Blech. You spit it out. It's half-hearted. It's lame. It's weak. 
Here you have the promise of great deliverance on the part of the Lord. And the response from the king is, meh, meh. What's he concerned about? He's concerned about losing Elisha. I want you to see a picture here that, again, matches a picture that we see throughout the history of the Israelites. Where their concern is not about the Lord and obedience to Him and His promises and His deliverance. It's not about trust in Him. But rather, it is trust in something else. He's not concerned about God and His deliverance. He doesn't run towards obedience, seeking the favor of the Lord. He at most half-heartedly pursues that. He's concerned about losing Elisha, just like the Israelites at earlier times were concerned about losing the ark. You see, Elisha is a real gift to the people. The ark is a true blessing to the people. A gift from the Lord, right? And it's a sign of his favor. The Lord doesn't often send prophets out to the Arameans. The Lord doesn't often give arks to not his people. Right? And in fact, when he does send a prophet to not his people, it's like Jonah. Judgment on them. Right? Or when you read the messages in Isaiah to the nations around, it's judgment. 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 And when the Philistines end up with the ark, it's judgment. But to the people of the Lord, the ark is a blessing. To the people of the Lord, the prophets are a sign of God's favor and of his salvation on them, of his keeping of his promises, of the fact that he has remembered his covenant and he will keep it forever. And so they're concerned, well, we don't want to lose the prophets. We don't want to lose the ark. Or later on, well, we don't want to lose the temple, right? And that's what's coming at the end. They've already given up the temple. They've given up the worship of the one true God, but, but even Judah will lose the temple. And what are these things? These are indications of God's faithful love for us, but they are not the things that bring us close to God. Now they're meant to, right? But when we're concerned about the things rather than the God behind the things, we've totally gotten everything backwards. And we begin to view the blessings of God as the point rather than the favor of God being the point, the blessings being how He shows it. You see the difference, right? You're getting the cart before the horse. 
Where do the blessings come from? The Lord. Why? Because he is pouring out his favor. What am I concerned about? We need the favor of the Lord. And I was thinking about how to illustrate this, and and it's like, you know, the thing behind the thing. That's what matters. How do you... How do you talk about that? Where, where do you see that? And I don't know if this analogy works real well, but okay, you all know what a vacuum cleaner is, right? And what do you do with a vacuum cleaner? You push it back and forth over the floor, right? And have you ever seen somebody vacuum a room with the power off? Anybody? You wouldn't bother, would you? You need the power on, or the vacuum's worthless. What is Elisha to the people of Israel without God behind him? He's like a vacuum cleaner that's not plugged in. Elisha is nothing. He's just a man. Without the Spirit of the Lord within him. It's so easy for us to begin to think that what we need are the outward signs. It's so easy for us to think that what we need is the blessing rather than the favor behind the blessing. And to think, well, who cares about God as long as I have enough food, a nice enough house, enough space, nice enough clothes, car that's working, a good job that makes me happy, right? But, but you, I know you, you, don't, you don't think that way. But you demonstrate that actually that's what's going on because you have all those things and then you don't think about God. And the fact that those are God's favor on you, those are the blessings that come because of his favor, right? And so what have you done? You've gotten the main thing confused for the secondary thing. So think about the book of Job for a second. Job has all those things and then he doesn't have all those things, right? They're all taken away. But does Job have the favor of the Lord? If you read the book of Job, there is no doubt at all that Job has the favor of the Lord from beginning to end. Even when God speaks to him in a way as for Job to finally go, Whoop. Compared to his friends who haven't suffered all the calamities that he has suffered, Job has the favor of the Lord. Right? So what is it that matters most? All of the physical blessings? Is that what keeps you safe? Is it having the ark that keeps you safe? Is it going to church that keeps you safe? Is it the fact that you read your Bible that keeps you safe? It's God who keeps you safe. 
He's the one who gave you those things. Yes, they serve their purpose. Yes, they demonstrate. Yes, they represent his love, his favor, his blessing, his protection. Yes, they are him providing for you. They are glorious, wonderful gifts, right? But without his favor, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? Who are you serving? Make up your mind already. The Israelites would not make up their minds. And then Elisha dies. And you think, oh, I guess they are done for, huh? Surely God is done. Showing favor on the Surely his patience has run out. And you know, the next thing we read is that little story of the men trying to bury a friend and they have to run away, run away! Because there's raiders coming. And so they throw him in the same hole that Elisha was buried in. How weird is that? you imagine being dead and then not being dead? It's hard to, hard to fathom, isn't it? What do, you, what do you remember? Probably the last thing you remember is, I think this is my last breath. Where am I? And then, it's not just a, it's not just a dream, and it's not just for him. You guys run home, make it, and then what? After a while, here comes their friend wandering in. Confused, dazed, look on his face. Ah! It's just as scary as the Arameans. But what is, what is the point? The point is God hasn't forgotten the Israelites. The point is Elisha isn't the one who saves them. God is the one who is at work through Elisha, and God continues to work through Elisha until when? Until now. Until now. God is still at work through Elisha in this service right now as we study him, isn't he? As with us being reminded of who God is and how he worked for his people who didn't deserve it. Can you imagine a more undeserving people for the prophets of Elijah and Elisha than the Israelites at this time? Okay, maybe maybe when Jeremiah was given. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like... But God is continuously faithful to his covenant promises. And so God has not forgotten his people. He has not given up. Elisha is the blessing that he provided and he continues to care and watch out for them. And we see that then in verse 22 where it reminds us that he is the one who sent judgment on his people through Hazael and the Arameans. And then back to back with that in verse 23 where God patiently continues to keep his covenant 
until now. Now, I want to I say two things about that. One is, today, in 2023, is God keeping his covenant? He is, isn't he? And yet, what I want you to see that it means in this passage is actually read verse 23 with me. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now notice what it says and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. Would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. Remember, the big context of this story is we're making it to the point where he destroys them and casts them from his presence out into exile. The point where it says it here is not that he hasn't forgotten his covenant until now. There is no question of him ever forgetting his covenant. He has not, will not, never has, never will. The question is, how long will he be patient with his people who have forgotten his covenant? And what we read in this chapter is, okay, even at this point, even after Elisha has died, the Lord has not cast them from his presence. The Lord has not destroyed them, but he was gracious to them and had compassion on them. God patiently cares for them. And we read in the next two verses of how that happens with the three victories of Jehoash or Joash over Aram. Right? For the three arrow strikes. As pathetic as they were, those three were honored. Like, look what I do with a little obedience. What could you have if you simply obeyed? God is so patient with his people. How much patience do you have when somebody can't make up their mind about what ice cream flavor they want? Oh, it's such a hard choice. Would you make up your mind already? It's starting to melt. Are you going to serve God or not? Make up your mind. How long will a man wait to hear the answer to the question, will you marry me? He may wait a long time. But there's a limit to how long he'll wait, right? How long will a woman wait to hear the question, will you marry me? Make up your mind already.
Have you been half-hearted in obedience to the Lord? Half-hearted in trusting Him, thinking that the things He's given are what you're seeking rather than Him? Worshipping both God and other idols in your life. God is patient. He'll never forget His covenant. Turn and worship Him alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness and your patience to us. Father, may we hear the words of your commands and may we obey wholeheartedly worshiping only you. Help us to turn aside from the idols. Help us not to put our faith in the things that you have given, but in you alone, we pray in Christ's name.